0: Patrons, and welcome to the last edition of the alternate timeline for this season. Hello time travelers and welcome to The Dispatch. So today it's a big episode. There's a lot going on in this bonus episode. So um I'm going to kind of like walk you through what we're going to do on this episode. Today we are talking about the final episode of the Flash Forward season, which was all about parallel universes, but along with that, we're going to talk about a bunch of other stuff and then at the end you're going to get that conversation that I mentioned with Amal and Max about time travel and parallel universes. So Here's the basic gist of what we're going to do on this episode. First, I'm going to talk a little bit about parallel universes. Then I'll do a little bit of like a season recap of what we did this season. Then I'm going to talk a little bit about next season, what's coming up, what's going to happen to this feed and this podcast. Then you'll get the conversation with Amal and Max to wrap it up. And then at the very end, of course, I will always come back and tell you a little secret. So, lots to do, so let's get into it. Um, uh, Parallel Universes episode, I hope that you all enjoyed it, um, and enjoyed the weirdness of it. Um, there were, it was really fun to make. Julia and I had a really good time making the various versions of Flash Forward. Um, that was actually Julia's idea. They suggested having like different parallel universe versions of what Flash Forward could be, which I thought was such a good idea. Um I never want to hear the song Cell Block Tango again in my life. I had to listen to it so many times to try and get the timing right on that song. Um, and I am so sorry for those of you who heard the song version uh, Parallel Universe because I am not a very good singer um, and uh, we got through it. But it was fun. It was fun to do. But I had that song stuck in my head for so long afterwards. Um, we didn't really cut very much from the episode. We kind of went in a lot of different directions, um, and got to talk about all sorts of stuff. So we didn't cut very much, but, you know, it was just fun to kind of play around with the randomized futures. Um, some people have asked how we did that and it's actually pretty simple. So as you know, probably, um... I use a dynamic ad insertion technology to put the ads in, which is why sometimes you hear me, sometimes you hear other people on the ads. It just means that I put the audio file for the episode into the content management system. And then I mark the places in the timeline where an ad would drop in. And so that works for ads, but it also works for fun things like this, where you get a random universe every time. So that's how we did that. It was actually not that complicated, (laughs) Um, but it's very fun. Um, So yeah, so that's that's the episode. Um, And it is the last episode of the season, which is very exciting. Um, Normally we end our seasons in December and not January, but because of a couple of things being pushed back uh, at the beginning of this season. We wound up ending in January, so that's fine. Um, But yeah, so that's it. That's the season. Um, We always take a little winter break every year, so we will be back in March. March 30th is the next uh, episode. So it feels like kind of far away, but not far away at all. Julie and I are already working on the next season, so over the next two and a half months, you will not hear very much from us, but we will be working hard to bring you the next season to get everything ready. Um, But yeah, this season was exciting. It was the five-year anniversary of Flash Forward, which is super exciting. We also did the 100th episode, which is super exciting. Um, I finished the Flash Forward book, which is again very exciting. Um, And we brought Julia on. Julia joined the team as the first ever associate producer. So it was a big year for Flash Forward. It was a big year of lots of really great things. I'm super excited. And um, all of those things are really only possible because of you, and I say that in particular because I also want to talk a little bit about the things that didn't go as well this year, Um, and one of those things is, as you've heard me talk about, um, ad sales. So our ad sales company, Multitude, is amazing, and I love them, and they've been really great and really responsive, and they work really hard for the show, Um, and I have no complaints about them. I've been with some ad sales companies that have been truly terrible, um, and so they've been great. 2020 was also just kind of like a weird year, right? And things that I thought were going to come through, there were a couple of big, um, sort of like funding groups that I thought might give us some money. They had been talking about giving us some money in the fall, um, of 28 of 2019. Yeah. Um, but that didn't come through because, you know, everybody's money kind of got frozen. And so, you know, the money side of things on flash forward was a little scary this year. Um, and also because of I, you know, the pandemic and lots of other things, numbers were down in terms of like download numbers. Um, so the show lost some listeners, um, which is always a bummer, but that also impacts how much I make in ads, right? Cause ads are directly correlated with how many people listen. So that was kind of the hard part of this year. And, um, the show has only continued on, uh, because of, people like you who donate. Um, So thank you for being here. Thank you for keeping the show independent, um, keeping the show its own weird entity. So um, hopefully next year we will be back up in the numbers and back up in the ad sales and all that good stuff. But um, we'll see what happens. Um, the other thing I want to say is that, um, every year at the end of the season, I put together a little bit of a recap post, um, for the website and it's up now. You can see it. I'll link to it in the show notes for this episode. And what we do every year is I go back and look at the goals that I set for myself for the beginning of the season and see if we met them, look at, you know, did we do what we had set out to do for the year? Um, One of the main goals that I've had for the last couple of years, and I've done these sort of public accounting posts for the past four years now. um, But one of the big goals that I've had is to try and get source diversity on the show up to about 40% um, Black and Indigenous people of color. Um, And I have not hit that in the last four years. Um, But this year I did. This year we got um, up to that number. And in fact, we got past 40%. It was actually about 50, 50, um, in terms of guest diversity. So source diversity, um, in terms of racial diversity. So I am happy with that. I'm happy with that. I think that is good. Um, I, you know, I'm hesitant to like, I don't know. I feel like I don't want to like make too big of a deal of this because it sort of, to me feels like if I'm going to be out here, Talking about how important it is to have diverse voices speaking about the future and about science and about society. Um, If I'm not doing it, then like, I can't be talking about it that way. And it's not really like I should be celebrated for it. It's just like, it should be a baseline thing. So... I am proud that we did it. Um I am happy that some of the changes that I made this year in the way that I go about the production of the show has um has paid off in terms of actually getting to the numbers that I, you know, we want to be at. Um part of the reason I post these numbers publicly and have posted the numbers publicly for four or five years now is because I, I kind of want other shows to do this too. Um, you know, it's well established that particularly white people tend to kind of overestimate how good they're doing on things like diversity. Um, and then when you actually look at the numbers, you kind of realize like, Oh, I'm actually not doing a great job. So, um, I do this publicly every year and I hope other shows do it too. Um, it's not just the only thing, you know, that's not the only thing we recap in these, You know, recap posts. I also talk about um, the balance of different types of episodes. Um, You'll see if you look at the post, there's like a little matrix where, you know, the XY axis is sort of science to society and the y or the x-axis is science to society and the y-axis is sort of likely to unlikely and you know we try to kind of hit all of those boxes in that matrix um and you'll see a little graph of all of them in there and laid out um so so yeah so you know i try to i try to do as much as i can in terms of thinking about what is the goal of the show and are we getting there so you can read that post um i will link to it in the show notes um Next season, what's coming up is much of the same. I mean, it'll be different episodes. The first episode is going to be on March 30th, which is also the same day as the Flash Forward book comes out, which I'm really excited about. Um, And the episode will tie into the book. I'm not going to give away what it is. Um, But yeah, we're going to get back into it in March. Um, We might do a mini season. So if you have been listening to the show for a while you maybe remember that in 2019, um, I sort of rearranged the schedule of the show to be these little mini seasons, um, four mini seasons of five episodes each. And they came out weekly. And um, I, you can read the recap post from that year about what I thought that might do and why I thought that was a good idea. And um, I obviously did not do that this year. I did, I sort of abandoned that idea. Um, but I do think that probably at some point next year, there we will do a mini season of some kind about something, um, and we're still talking about what it will be. But um, but yeah, I think that like tossing one in there makes sense, maybe not rearranging the whole schedule for the entire year. Um, also next year, we're probably going to do a couple more um, episodes that revisit old episodes, particularly season one episodes. So if you've been listening since season one, you know that the show has changed a lot since 2015, which is when it started. Um, And it's gotten longer. So the original show was only 15 to 20 minutes. Um, And I feel like there are also some topics where my point of view has changed a little bit um, and the way I'd present the idea has changed. So Julia and I have been talking about doing some kind of like... Revisit episodes where we kind of relook at something that was in the first season and kind of maybe blow it out a little bit more or in a little bit different way. Um, So that's also part of the plan. So yeah, that's um that's what's coming up. Uh, in between now and then, what's going to happen with this podcast in the meantime is that it will become less frequent. So I won't have stuff to talk to you about really because it'll all be about episodes you haven't heard yet because they haven't come out yet. So you'll get. Here and there, you're going to get little bonus episodes in this feed um, as things happen that I can talk to you about or as there's stuff for me to kind of let you in on in terms of behind the scenes stuff. But it won't be every week or every other week Um, it won't be that frequent. It'll be, you know, here and there surprise episodes. Um, there will be a flash forward main feed episode in February because we sold an ad in February. And so there's going to be another one of those back to the future episodes that we did last year, probably. Um, and I'll work on that. So if you have any requests for updates on the future that you really want to hear, um, on an update episode, uh, let me know. We can do that. Um, so yeah, so it'll just kind of be, there's not like a super clear plan for this feed. Um, it'll kind of, things will pop up as, as I have things to talk to you about. And if I don't, then it'll be kind of quiet. So, um, I don't know exactly what it's going to look like. Um, but if you have requests for things that you want in this feed, you know, it could be an AMA, it could be like, which is ask me anything. It could be. I mean, like story time, it could be like pretty much anything. If you have something that you really want to hear or something that you, or even if there was a person who you thought was super interesting, um, in the season and you want to hear the whole conversation with them, I'm totally happy to do that. So let me know if there's anything that you really want to hear. Um, but if, if I don't hear from you folks, I'm just kind of, kind of peppered in with stuff that I think is cool and interesting and, and that you might, you might want to hear. So there's no official schedule on that. Um, Okay, now I'm going to take you to the conversation with Amal and Max, co-authors of This is How You Lose the Time War. I'm going to leave you with that. And then when we come back, a little secret, but um, just enjoy this conversation with them. I thought it was really fun and kind of wide ranging. We do yell about Star Wars for some period of time um, and I hope you enjoy it. Okay, here it goes. Awesome. All right. Well, so the first thing I'll ask you two to do is the easy thing. Can you both just say your name for me, who you are, what
1: you do? Uh, My name is Amal al-Muhtar. I'm a writer and critic. I uh, write mostly short fiction, poetry, and the occasional co-written novella, Um, and I write the Otherworldly column for uh, the New York Times Book Review, and I also teach creative writing at the University of Ottawa.
2: And I'm Max Gladstone. I write novels, primarily science fiction and fantasy. Most recently, I uh, just solo Empress of Forever and also the craft sequence of urban fantasies. I'm a game designer. Um, I've written interactive fiction connected with my work. I was the creator for a interactive web televi- televisual web series called Wizard School Dropout, uh, which was produced by Sandy Perik, and that came out last year. Um, so yeah and uh, written serial fiction a lot of collaborative work so all over i keep myself busy
0: yeah and can you tell me the origin story of this novella like how does one begin how does this happen this is an interesting <laughs> and unique story like how does it
1: happen so i highly recommend uh you know going to conventions and meeting excellent people who you want to be friends with for the rest of your life uh so um, I mean, the origin story of the book is really that Max and I started becoming friends primarily through writing each other handwritten letters. We'd, we'd met at a con, uh, we'd had a really great time, and we started writing each other letters uh, by hand and uh, built like a correspondence there separate from our interaction on social media and through email and stuff. And in eventually- the sort of
2: semi-public spaces of the... of conventions or the social web yeah
1: yeah exactly and it it, all of the um and as we were doing that like all of the qualities of handwritten correspondence of like privacy and quiet and intimacy and focus were all sort of um informing you know the way that our friendship was developing and we also um were reading each other's work and there came a point after Max was reading my short stories actually I I prefer it when Max tells this part of the story (laughs) because it makes me feel very warm and fuzzy in my heart but like we were corresponding um during Max being on book tour which meant that I was receiving letters from Max but couldn't actually send them back so like because he was on the move um so I was just kind of receiving all these letters and composing like one mega letter in reply that he'd eventually get when he was back home Um, but then (laughs)
2: Well, so I washed up after book tour in New York City during at the tail end of restaurant week. And everybody was busy that night. Uh, everybody I knew in the city, I had a hotel and a um, train out the next morning at like 730. So I just needed to find a place to hang out for a little while. And I had a story, a, a folder on my phone of Amal's stories that I'd been keeping kind of saving to read when I had a moment and in a way it was ideal because I'd been on tour with a bunch of other writers on like one car traveling around from bookstore to bookstore doing the whistle stop thing and I wasn't really fit human company at that point so I went to a small italian restaurant and got the uh, the restaurant week menu and sat there with a glass of wine just reading almost everything you'd published by that point that wasn't criticism. I mean, all the fiction, all the good stuff. Okay. <clears throat> all the stuff you sent me anyway.
1: Yeah. I'd sent you like a curated list. No.
2: <laughs> mm-hmm. oh, okay. I see. I see. So I was there for like two, three hours and I came out thinking there's always this, this risk when you're reading the work of somebody that you are enormous. Uh, you're extremely good friends with that you like a lot as a person. Maybe you just won't click with it. Or maybe you'll see, oh, yeah, they're doing basically the same thing I'm doing. Or maybe you'll see ways that you're in, on different, um, at different points in your journey. But I had this wonderful feeling reading Amal's work where we had a lot of similar interests but we were approaching them in very different ways. I had a great deal of respect for things that she was doing and I wanted to learn how she was accomplishing some of the effects that she was accomplishing and I don't know it just felt like our styles would mesh really well and I a few glasses into the evening sort of stumbled out post sunset and texture like oh we need to write something to get it let's do it let's let's do it and we'll bring the planets into alignment and ensure world peace and you know all that (laughs) bill and ted kind of
1: stuff right dolphins will speak and that's yeah. all that. like we basically the the origin story of the book is that we decided that we wanted to write something together. So we wanted to uh, and that that was the goal. It wasn't like, oh I've got this great idea that we should it was like no what what how can we shape a project so that we two extremely busy humans can w- like work together. How can we make our different styles mesh in some way? How can we like Make our shared interests, you know, speak to each other in this space, and all of and, and like keep
2: keep our, our different contributions as clear as possible. Yeah, I, to, to to clarity is the it. wrong way to put it, but but you know, there, there's a there's a, a risk always when you're trying to do something with somebody else in a creative field, and especially with writing, where where there's so. Um, what am I trying to say here exactly? In prose fiction, you have the words on the page in order and that's it. You don't have like the visual and auditory layers that you have in in um, something televisual or in a film. You don't have the art versus dialogue divide that you do in comics. It's just the words. So you have this very clear stream and it's there's a, a danger working with somebody that you'll end up kind of sanding off what's interesting and unique about one another's voices if you're trying to go back over the same line or that you'll have like slightly different approaches to dialogue and they don't quite, they, the, the gear end up grinding against one another rather than meshing. So we wanted to find a, a form too that would let our work be fully itself and sort of support one another. There'd be interleaving like uh, like, I don't know the logs in a cabin,
1: <laughs> and we had this extremely, you know, convenient experience of a year's worth of letter writing, which seemed like it would be um, a, a really wonderful solution to this potential problem, which didn't like ended up being this this virtue of necessity of. Um, envisioning not so envisioning a bunch of structural things that could enable this. like for one thing, it being a novella so that we would each be like, well, eh, writing a novel together might be a big ask, but writing half a novella each, that seems like reasonable to to be able to do together. Um, we had a writing retreat that we were both going to be at coming up, and we started to like say, okay, so we've got like these 10-ish days that we're gonna have together. What can we get done in that period of time? This seems reasonable. Um, And we started talking about it in very abstract ways of, um, right, so we're going to have two entities writing letters to each other. We know we're going to do that. We want to play with this idea of time in these letters. We want to, uh, because letter writing is a kind of time travel. When you're sitting down to write a letter, you are not going to be the same person that you'll be when your letter is received. And when you're writing a letter, you are envisioning the person you're writing it to in 10 days time because there's always that time delay. So the idea that you sit down and basically invent the person who you're going to write this letter to already feels like it's an act of creation, an act of um, intimacy and empathy and all of those things that we we wanted to get into uh, a project together. So then everything about like a war in time and parallel Uh, parallel universes, but like timelines, different timelines that all kind of existed simultaneously and stuff like that, all sort of grew out of the sense of the project that we wanted to have come out of our collaborating, as opposed to like having the idea and figuring out how we were going to collaborate on it.
2: Yeah, I mean, it connected with some old science fictional concepts like the change war, the edit war, which go back at least to Fritz Leiber's The Big Time, and I think probably even uh, further than that. Yeah, but it also, ha- having the letters be sent and received from these extremely different uh, spaces, right? You know, like we're in, somebody's receiving a letter on a beach in um, 15th century Peru somebody's receiving a letter in on a, in Atlantis or on an alien planet millions of years in the future. Um, it gets at some, and another aspect of the experience of sending and receiving letters where what you get whatever is going on in the other person's life, wherever you are, whatever emotional state you're in, whatever's just happened, and they have no control over that. So, you know, you, a, a kind intimate ribbing kind of letter can arrive the on the worst day of your life um, it can arrive when something's on fire it can and or it can arrive at exactly the right moment and so you're sort of the part of you're assuming you're having to create who you expect the other person is going to be but you're also receiving them from wherever they are in wherever you are and you're having to respect the sort of version of you that they've created in the context of sending the letter so all of this played in with this weird notion of alternate realities like the you to which the letter is sent is not necessarily the you who receives and and you get to kind of see that other you in passing too on the sort of sliding doors way
1: um like if you like I mean literally the last letter that I received from you was one that you had written in September and then sort of like because time this year in particular is so wacky. <laughs> um, like forgot yep. that you'd written until you encountered it later and then sent it to me with a letter written in December saying like, I wrote this back in September, here you go. I, I don't know what's in it. I'm not going to like revisit it, but like, and it really like it's a time capsule of, you know, that that snapshot of you in time, which I get to interact with in this way. Um, and which you may have completely forgotten about it by this point. So, I hadn't forgotten that
2: the letter existed. It was sort of there, but it was always like, I should I should post this to a is or something I should do I, when I when I leave the house.
1: Ah we'll do it. <laughs> oh, God. this week.
2: That's right. Nope. Yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> exactly.
0: Yeah. It's interesting. I don't know why, and maybe it's because I had just finished rereading The Future of Another Timeline right before I read your book that like in my head when for the first like half of the book maybe this is embarrassing to admit i thought that red and blue were the same entity but like in different ver- different oh, versions yeah, yeah. of the same
1: Thing. There is a parallel universe in which that version of the book 100 exists. I have seen other readers also like say that. Like, oh, good! Oh, I felt <laughs> really dumb when I was then. like, "Oh." <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not
2: even convinced. I'm not convinced that they're not. You know, like it, it, it's the change. War is a strange thing. I, you know, the Garden and Commandant have weird concomitant features we discussed, like in fantasy casting. You know, casting the same person or. Yeah are like using the same voice possibly for both of those entities um maybe maybe they are and certainly the course of the novel brings them kind of closer together and interweaves them in in an interesting way
1: also i extremely love that book uh the future of the timeline and i i i think that so this is a, a weird sidebar but The that book and our book came out the same year, and it was a better year for time travel books featuring queer women as the protagonists. (laughs) Like it was those books, there was Kate Mascarenes's, um, The Psychology of Time Travel, there was uh, um, Cameron Hurley's, uh, The Light Brigade. Um, there was Monsters and Lucky
2: Peach also that year, or was that I think
1: I. Yeah, I can't. Remember. I think it was either like the very end of the previous year that that date came, but it was written. So the thing about all of these books is that I ended up asking everyone in question, and they had all been written in 2016, and that was mm. like the the thing that connected them to me was just that as everything was exploding, all of these uh, all of these writers were just suddenly like, you know, the I feel the need to explore time travel, alternate worlds, memory specifically with with queer women at the forefront um and like a a lot of stuff played into that but but yeah Yeah,
0: we also read the light brigade for the book club and annalee is a good friend of mine and so she's been on the show they've been on the show before um i haven't seen them all year even though like they live just across the bay like (laughs) you you know i'm in berkeley we used to see like them and charlie jane and like you know now i they're like so
2: close yet so far. <laughs> <Good>. <laughs> it's I mean we've got this whole crew up here in the Cambridge Somerville area, and no, I mean there's there are two people who we are theoretically bubbled up with, and we love them dearly, but also we're in the situation where like it's now fall, win- it's now like late fall winter, and you know somebody gets a cold or gets a weird reaction to leaf moss or something. I'm like okay, see you in two weeks, I guess. Yep. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Exactly
2: it's
0: yeah. you and it's it's interesting that you are have like in the book time travel and these alternate universes are kind of like they're they're intrinsically linked like they're you cannot have one without the other in this formulation of the story which is not always true sometimes you do time travel and you don't have so did you ever have a conversation about like why those two things feel so linked
1: to you for this book
2: I've for been this at book, the beginning yeah yeah, we mm-hmm. had
1: to. So yeah, we had to decide what kind of time travel we wanted. Like we knew we wanted a time war. Um, <clears throat> we knew we wanted to have like distinct sides, um, and we we knew that we wanted the sides to be uh, sort of equal and opposite, but in ways that felt generative instead of restrictive. So for that, like when we were looking at, you can have all of these different forms of time travel narratives, right? Um, You can have really deterministic ones where you can't change anything by knowing the future. You can only bring the future about Um, then. And you can have ones with like the, the generating of multiple timelines through multiple decisions and things like that. And we wanted that for a few reasons. One, because it helped to embrace the generative aspect where we could just continue to proliferate um, different genre tropes, different, like going to all of these different places in um, callbacks to fiction or music or books or what have you. But it also meant that we didn't have to, uh, that we could always, whenever thinking of a moment in history, ask why not instead of like what actually happened when we were writing this we were sitting in uh, we were sitting across from each other in a gazebo with no access to the internet. Uh, so we literally only had what we were bringing of our own embodied knowledge to the table there. Um, so we didn't want to- way to put it. Yeah, (laughs) indeed. Exactly. (laughs) Um, And this is the thing, like, um, you know, Max has a lot more knowledge about um, physics and math and science and China uh, in general. And I have a lot more knowledge about like names of botanical things (laughs) and English literature and Canadian bands from the (laughs) nineties. And like, we were, so like, we were bringing that to each other. And the thing that felt like it was most uh, enabling of that was a form of time travel where anything that you could imagine could reasonably have taken place and it also spoke to the fact that the way that we think of history the way that we discuss history is one of constantly engaging in an edit war literally, where you are always like, oh, we are rediscovering queer people. We're rediscovering trans people. It's like, no, they've always been here. It's like they they weren't invented at a certain moment that you keep on kind of moving backwards. Um, so the idea of like the parallel world is kind of just the ever present world of what we can imagine. And the idea that what we're doing essentially is always broadening the realm of our imagination is to kind of enable those worlds into being, and that's that's what we kind of wanted to do with this.
2: I think that's one of the real potentials for historical fiction or time travel fiction in general, because the seed there is possibility, is why not, or what if, or how could it be, as opposed to an attempt to get extremely rigorous in your um, in your perspective on history or extremely uh, sort of scientific what. Do we absolutely know? There was a great uh, article I was reading the other day about uh, ramp access to Greek temples in the the, like in the classical era and classical antiquity. Oh yeah, yeah, super common, uh, yeah, yeah, extremely common, Uh, and they're more common in places where you would logically expect people who had various mobility issues to be desiring access. So like temple of Mars, temple of Mars or Aries, maybe not quite as much, but you go to a temple of Asclepius, who's the healing God. And there are just ramps everywhere, ramps to get in, ramps to get out. And of course the, um, the original sort of 19th century British white boy archaeologists tromping around as we're looking at these. Oh, clearly, this is how they got the sacrifices into the temple or one thing or another. But it's it's very logical to think or to look at this and say, oh, this is how people are getting in. If they can't climb the stairs, that's awesome. And the, the article also had some anthropologists and archaeologists with differing views on the subject saying, well, we don't. It's maybe a little strange or a little stressed to put our sort of the the ADA Act compliance lens over the fact that these ramps did exist. We know that they did exist, but saying they existed specifically for this disability accommodation as opposed to for multiple purposes, like that, a multiple purpose, like that's the kind of, it, it's hard to say in an anthropological context because all we have is the ramp. Yeah. But we do know that the ramp existed and so it's extremely easy to imagine people using it and people using it for this reason. I think that's one of the powers of fiction that you don't have to say, this must have been this for why. Uh, for what reason, it, it, you, can, you can take what exists, what you know, and then tease out the possibilities and implications of it.
1: I think that it also speaks to the, I mean, in a number of ways, to current narratives about disability saying that, you mm, know, true. perhaps will benefit loads of people. Yeah, right? that's also like, true. Yeah, absolutely. And, but but uh, that to me, somebody has to a
2: stroller. Yeah. Right,
1: exactly. And it's also the, but that, that specific impulse towards multiplicity as opposed to reduction is, is exactly the, the thing that I think we're talking about too, mm-hmm. where um, yeah, the so. idea that, like, I, I think there's a lot of um, anthropological discussion about, um, devices. I mean, so say you, you something like the antikythera mechanism or something, which I do not know enough about to speak about authoritatively, except that I'm not sure anyone does. So I think, okay, <laughs> entirely, but like I, 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 don't know the boundaries of my own ignorance in this sense. Is probably what I should say.
2: My favorite example of these are all the like quote divinatory objects and yes. quote like the the D20 that that they yes. found in 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 some Roman archaeological settlement. Like oh yeah, divination totally. Yeah. You know what's your Thaco?
1: <laughs> like, exactly. Well, this is, this is actually what I was trying to get to and I was going through like, wait, which an- to, which antique objects are going to get to this? Like, the, the fact that like, we look at, at at things we don't know and go, ah, yes, sacred ritual, as opposed to games. And yeah. it's, you know, like, the, and this could you
2: know, be both. has a great story about wandering through um, some Neolithic museum with a friend of hers who is, uh, who is a, a, a fabric artist. And when they get to this case and it all be like mysterious ritual objects and friends friend looks like mm, that's a loom weight. That's uh, also a loom weight. <laughs>
1: <Yes>. <laughs> and that reminds me of like the, the whole, um, the, that beautiful article about a hairdresser who like solved the problem of how did Roman women uh, get their hair that way. Oh, you know? excellent. Oh, that's um, so cool. And she was like, oh, no, they, they wove it with thread. Like that is the way that you could do that. These were not wigs. You can do this with hair. You can, you just have to actually weave it with a thread. And it's an expertise that is absolutely absent from the scholars otherwise working in classical antiquity. And so a hairdresser could look at it and say, no, this is how you would do it. You can do this today. We have this technology. Mm-hmm. But the idea of like Um, you know, the, the, the object, is it divinatory? Is it playful? It is obviously both, which we can like look to with the way that we treat tarot cards, right? Like they are, people use them for divination, people use them for games. People use games for divination in sometimes very like thoughtful and and, like games critic adjacent ways. Um, so that idea that like everything can be these multiple things, um, also is a kind of like establishing a parallel worldness, right? Like I'm using my tarot cards for um, a gameplay here, but I'm using them for divination here. I'm playing For the Queen by Alex Roberts, beautiful, amazing game that I love so much, uh, you know, as as a game here, but kind of also as therapy over here, like <laughs> the, the, the kind of multiplicity of um, of uses of a single object are, are so interesting to me. Like I, I just, I, I feel like, embracing the the generative and the um the multiple and the parallel and the intersecting as opposed to trying to shear things away from things um is just always my impulse uh and I letting things be multiple things yeah yeah
2: i think i mean i think that's also the reason for the braiding metaphor in time war or one of the reasons behind it mm. um you have moments where the timelines diverge and where they cross, where possibilities intersect, where one specific event or occurrence can have downstream effects and a bunch of different timelines or, or many different implications. Um, there's, It's not as though things that are separate are separate forever also. They can come back together. You can have kind of a loop that rejoins. Or you can sort of fuse two things into one. It's it felt more accurate to history, weirdly, even though as far as we know, there's not a massive change war going on. To think about that, to think about the to envision history as a space that is contested where something that advances one side's cause is also advancing another side's cause maybe at the same time where, where you can have multiple victories and multiple defeats yeah, in one moment, one conflict.
0: Yeah. I can talk about ramps for forever because uh, my journalistic career started out actually writing about disability access stuff. Oh, cool, and like, that's awesome. like what I, There's a great book, if you are interested in this, that I'm gonna I actually literally have right here uh, underneath my caterpillar jar that I have captured a caterpillar in. Amazing! Oh, gonna oh it's, gonna, it's gonna metamorphosize soon. It's gonna build, I don't know if you can see it, but it's, uh, okay, it's hanging from the top here. Oh, cool! Oh, yeah! Oh, it's gonna turn oh. it into a chrysalis today, I think. So I'm like, yes, that's yes. why i keep like looking at it to be like, is it happening? What um, <laughs> <but the laughs> I wanted to show you is this book. It's called Making Disability Modern, and it's really good. And it talks a ton about like cool. access issues and different people like. Uh, My friend Liz Jackson, who's a disability advocate, says um, disabled people were the original body hackers and also the (laughs) hackers, where they're like they're the ones who know how to like take the spoon and open the like can of coke because you can't use your finger to do it or like whatever it is. Anyway, I recommend this book. Um,
2: That's great. Thank you so much.
0: um, I want to sort of going on like this idea of it is it can be really hard, right, to write a time travel thing like. Cameron had, like, I don't know if you ever saw the picture of, like, her giant wall of, like, and the spreadsheet and, like, whatever. She had, like, a mathematician come in to, like, help her make sure that everything was, like, working properly. Um, One of the things I love about this book is that, like, because of the form of the letters, like, you can kind of blur away some of the logistics of exactly, like, how this is working and, like, you can kind of really focus in on the relationship and all that, which I really like. I am not a hard sci-fi person. I really like the characters in the relationships, I don't, I don't need to know how the spaceship works. I don't need, I, that's fine. <laughs> like, <you> know, <laughs> it's like personally for me.
2: If but, I knew how the spaceship works, I would go out and build the spaceship <laughs> yeah. and get a <laughs> better return on my investment, you know? Like, yeah, uh, right,
0: right. Give Elon <laughs> a call. Yeah, yeah. Um, but was, was there, was there any, was it hard at all to like figure out any like, you know, intricacies here? Like what was the hardest part of working on this?
1: The hardest part was definitely, trying to figure out um, the the denouement, uh, where we we basically, we had talked about the shape of the story. Like we had rough act breaks, Um, we knew that what what, what we wanted to have um, be the kind of culminating moment of each one of these acts, but um, getting that to interact with the letter structure was tricky. Um, like figuring, like there was just a moment that I will forever remember where we were again, like pacing in the gazebo, and ended up just kind of lying down on the ground, like you know, head to head, staring at the ceiling, going, "What if? No, okay. No, what if? Oh, no, yeah, wait. For no. About I... three hours, I think. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and it was just like the logistics of right. We know that one of them is going to die, and the other one is going to be responsible for that and try to bring them back but how is that gonna work letter wise uh, and what is the timing of that and how do we maintain the symmetry of the story in relation to those things um, so that part was tricky and it even like once we had figured it out it still needed some tweaks in post like it still needed uh, like part of the revision process was like oh wait how we need to make this clearer we need to like do like so that that part grew in fact if I'm remembering correctly that part grew in edits where the beginning like sort of got sharpened and and more like distilled and stuff like that but the the part that we ended up writing more of all came in uh in that at that point in the story in the revision process um so just so it wasn't like how was our time travel working? It was it, like we, I, except that we decided that any agents of the time world can like sort of exist outside of the braid in in a way that we're not examining. <laughs> it's just. Um, I mean, they is, all. You know, yeah, is,
2: you, you can. It's just the sort of meta time conception, right? Like city in mean, the got... city.
0: They're in the same place. They're not in the same place. It's fine. <laughs> exactly. right, yeah. I mean, you've got you've got like <laughs> yeah.
2: uh you've got a sort of you've got two broadly speaking, two two major options when you're making a time travel story. One of them is to include meta time, which is to say some sort of time that is above time within which all of that time travel stuff can happen. So there can be a time traveler's perspective that allows you to enter in at different points. And the other one is there's just one single continuity and then it always resets. So anything that a time traveler has done always has been done. Um, The time traveler themselves are sort of included in this though, like a a raisin and a loaf of bread or something. Yeah, Um,
1: And we do kind of have both of those going on in the book. And as much as like they have their relationship with each other, is one that like their actions are always going to already have brought about, but then the everything that they are doing war wise is sort of proliferating um in new tributaries and in the the time. Required. Yeah,
2: like within meta time. Once you're in <laughs> yeah. meta time, you're in a single timeline, exactly. but all of the other stuff is like higher dimensional time.
1: Exactly. Yeah. It yeah. It's like galaxy your galaxy brain. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah.
2: Well, and this is this is part of the advantage of the of the approach, I think that um, any actual kind of time war or time traveling conflict would like any real conflict be just so immeasurably huge and complicated and multifaceted that trying to tell one story that captures the whole thing would be. Folly. You know, you could try, but you'd end up with something like the size of War and Peace or Life and Fate. You know, these these giant encyclopedic attempts to say what the war is. And what we wanted to do here instead was talk about two people who are on different sides. And in in a way, the multiplicity of realities, the constantly changing structure, the confusion. Um, the fact that we're all, we're seeing them, at, you know, sometimes in decades apart from the previous letter, all of that, um, I think, goes to suggest the size and scope of the project that they're involved in, and and how intimidating it is, even for such terrifying creatures as red and blue are. They're like they're ultimately very small pieces of this huge and inhuman thing.
1: I think this is also partly the. You know, the appeal of the coffee shop AU, right? Yeah, right. Um, Like the idea that you can take the uh, emotional core of a conflict that is written in a different genre with much higher, um, with much greater scope, with much, uh, you know, like, yeah, that you're taking the scope of something much bigger and reducing it to its emotional stakes, which can be very small and very contained. Um, I'm thinking, I want to shout out to like uh, Laya Rose, who's a New Zealand artist who did the most beautiful <laughs> oh, yes. coffee oh, shop God. AU so art good. of Time War, where like uh, Blue works at a coffee shop called The Garden and uh, <laughs> Red works at one called The Agency. And it's just, it's like two pieces of art where they're visiting each other's coffee shops.
2: Also, so this weird. is the context of the AU where like, you know, Red's... Um where the agency is like extremely good at coffee but has shit pastries and
1: (laughs) yeah exactly like I just like I saw this art and I was like oh god I want to write this now I know right isn't
2: it great I uh, man like I you know I guess we're talking about alternate universes so the coffee coffee. shop I use like a really interesting example um not at all scientific but I wonder sometimes if there's an angle to it that's also like reclaiming the actual context of the story from these weird genre constraints around what's a meaningful conflict. Oh, like yeah. right now, I mean, imagine, think about like the the Marvel Cinematic Universe is the one that I'm most familiar with people yeah. writing Coffee Shop AU in yeah. regards to like, Tony Stark is the manager of the local Starbucks and that yeah. kind yeah. of thing, <laughs> right? Um, and like the MCU doesn't. I'm gal starts sorts of hate mail for this maybe but it doesn't seem to me like the mcu really cares about like the actual experience of being in a violent conflict or having an infinity war right. it's not really interested in you know how somebody who's been through three thousand fist fights feels like they there are moments of deep pathos where you know it slows down the music and somebody cues something that sounds kind of like barbara's adagio for strings and you, you know you're just sort of you know like oh okay yeah captain america is sad captain in America here. Sure, but, but but I feel like we're bringing a lot more of that sense of who these characters are to the, the, the fiction than the fiction is necessarily bringing to itself.
1: Mm-hmm. So,
2: so in, in a way, maybe like Coffee Shop AU is this attempt to, to refocus. Like what's really important here is these people trying to do this thing that they care a lot about. Yeah. And because of the exigencies of multi-billion dollar Hollywood blockbuster filmmaking, they need to be fighting a giant robot in space but really this is empire records right you know like empire right. records only with super suits I, I i don't know like
1: i think i think it's actually an interaction of both those things yeah, i yeah. think that it's the uh, you want the conflict to be human sized, so that you the human can climb into the giant mech aspect of it and True. yeah right like that yeah. those thing like i don't think that the appeal of the coffee shop au would be there if it didn't start from this place of wanting you small human person to be able to participate in this gigantic much bigger than you conflict which is what our feelings feel like a lot of the time true that's uh, a really good point so yeah but yeah, I don't know. I don't want to go too far in this direction. No, I, it's great. I was, yeah. um,
0: I was, well, I think, you know, Cameron's The Light Brigade is like very focused on like the PTSD element of like, yes. yeah, 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 you know, absolutely. And, I
1: was going to say, if you want an actual yeah. experience of right. Infinity War, The Light Brigade is a hundred percent that Brutal.
0: Like there were a couple of people who were reading it and they were like, I like this book, but I feel terrible after I finish reading <laughs> it because it's just, it's so brutal and it like does not let up at any moment. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I was just watching The Fifth Element last night because it's been on TV and I love it. Um so oh, good. Like, it's an absolutely absurd, like completely out of this world, like, <laughs> but like at the same time, you can still be like, oh yeah, like the guy who's a taxi driver who got fired and like has a mom who's yelling at him all the time on the phone, you know, like, yeah, like yeah, I get yeah. that. Yeah, yeah,
2: <laughs> exactly it's something that those like big attempts to make like transcendent strange space universe often you know they, they often kind of fall down this is the area the star wars can sometimes fall down right? you know you're re- I, we were re-watching a new hope as you're we doing a bunch of christmas present wrapping a few uh, days ago and my gosh you know we start off with a bunch of people trying to do their jobs like d 2 and C-3PO are trying to get the heck away from the laser guns. That's that's fine. But also, like, Luke is trying to figure yeah. out how he can apply to the military academy and get out of Kansas. And he's trying to get out to the American Graffiti Diner where all his buddies hang out. It's extremely grounded, I know that guy or gal person kind of story. Han Solo, space trucker with odd mob connections. Like, that's- <laughs> <laughs> it's a perfectly reasonable like yeah. sort of thing. And and when when it when it expands, when the mythology obscures any kind of actual connection you have to these people and what their lives look like, then it, it's very hard to it's very hard to sing.
0: Yeah, yeah. Like that's the, why I was it, so it, You need know,
2: a certain like, amount John. of tension on the string to make the notes. sorry.
0: Yeah, no, that's why I was so bummed that John Boyega didn't get more, like, I was really curious. Yeah, right? Like, it, oh, like what is it like to leave, be, like, being a spectator, and then they just, like, completely throw him aside. Anyway, I can rant yeah, no, about Star be, Wars all
2: day. <laughs> sad, like, he's the guy that we know.
1: Like, right, you know, he's, and he's, he's the you he want dude to
2: has been he doesn't want to go back to the war. That's extremely
1: right. Isn't that, I don't know if this is the case because I'm not sufficiently versed in Star Wars, but isn't him removing the stormtrooper helmet like the first time that yes. you first see someone, time you that's... see the face
0: in any yeah. of the main ones there's a couple of like spin-off cartoons where you see their right. faces but not in any of like the main star wars yeah and there are
2: obviously <laughs> moments where like luke is wearing the stormtrooper armor yeah. and takes right. it off and then you can see his face but so there's an implication that they have faces right but we yeah. Don't see. yeah
1: exactly i mean the idea actually that plays to it as well the idea that like If prior to this, you only have like the stormtrooper, the blank, the faceless and stuff be removed as a disguise in order to reveal like the true character. The idea that there is an actual person inside the stormtrooper universe, when the entire design of that costume is made to, you know, absolutely assimilate you into this mass. And instead it's like, no, it just... You take off this, not only, I mean, you know, I'm not going to read it's things into the, oh, it's a white costume and you take it off and show a uh, black dude, you know, it's like, but the it was enormously powerful to yeah. see that yeah. on screen. Enormously yeah. powerful. And to just have him be like, you know, identified by a bloody handprint throughout, all of that stuff felt so much more powerful to me than... Subsequent things, which I won't get into because
2: <laughs> yeah. again, we want to avoid the hate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. this anyway. is just like speaking of missed opportunities and alternate realities. Truly, you know.
0: yeah. I have my whole alternate universe version of those most recent three movies that is in my mind way better. I'm sure everyone has their own version of these. I'd things. be like
2: this is this is the project, the anthology project that I uh, I think nobody would be involved in because everybody'd be worried about pissing someone off, right? But like I'm really curious if you took 20 different people for you know writers artists and just like okay what were your three movies maybe even start with the force awakens as a like we've got those basic characters and situations just what what are your Mm. what are the remaining beats of your story here well she's
0: not related to palpatine that made me so mad i know I don't anyway. know,
2: like, maybe we bring
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I, just I, ruins I the look, I, I read... Setup. The whole setup was supposed to be that, like, it doesn't matter who you are and, like, the right. little kid with the broom. What happened to the kid with the broom? Anyway. What happened...
1: The uh, little kid with the broom team. is definitely some, like... Yeah, yeah, know, he's like Obi-Wan Kenobi's kid. <laughs> <is, laughs> yeah, exactly. Is, is, is exactly. how it comes
2: out. Like, look, I mean, I'm, I'm, a, I, I, I have, I'm a sucker for a fourth act reveal as much as the next guy, probably more. But, geez, look, I read... Every single one of the Infinite Dark Empire comic series in 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 the, the Dark Horse put out in the 90s about like Palpatine clones coming back. And oh no, it's a new Palpatine clone. Yeah. It felt like I, I was just sitting there like, did Cam Kennedy write this? Like did they <laughs> just sort of What's I I love those comics, but by the sixth or seventh retread, there was like, oh, new young, sexy Palpatine shows yeah. up again. I was just
1: you know this is actually <laughs> amazing to me because I, it had not occurred to me before this moment in time that uh that the nineties pop culture mainstream obsession with clones is also a kind of parallel universe thing. In that I'm thinking oh. of like X Men, yeah. um, and everything to do with um. Madeline Pryor and Jean Grey, but also with Nate Grey, like everything that is like, We are going to, through the medium of duplicating children and parents, explore different ways to tell this story or tell, like, there there is something there. also all those
2: Spider-Man clones. All the Spider-Man clones. Hundreds of Spider-Man clones.
1: Yeah. You want Spider-Man to get married? Well, there's got to be some clones involved. You want, like, (laughs) you know, you you can't, there's a kind of, like, um, I, I could get so wanky about this and I'm not going to, but I will say that, like, Umberto Eco has a really interesting very dense article about time and the superhero um, and that like there's a whole mm-hmm. his, his whole thesis is basically that like the, the superhero cannot marry or have children because that is a uh, an act of mortality that like like sets the clock ticking on the kind of narrative time experience of the superhero universe. So I, we don't need to get into that, um, but it's a really great article. And I, uh, well, it's it's well, a very so interesting you get, actually, article. you know,
2: to to well, we don't to we don't need to get into. We
1: that. don't need to get into. It. I don't know how much time we have, but <laughs> I was just point I point was point
2: just point watching a, a, an interesting like Patrick H. Willems video about like what is what is up with the R-rated superhero movie yeah and it be basically going over the um at some point in the 70s 80s uh superhero comics started basically aging up with the audience so not so you, you moved beyond maybe you can even think of it kind of like an arms race where initially these comics are fundamentally aged into eight to 12 year olds and then marvel's like ah 14 to 17 year olds too and then it just starts tracking up from there so at this point you have comics that are made for like divorced 45 year olds and 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 it's it, it sort of to me this is interesting mostly because of the um, the weird effects that copyright and intellectual property regimes place on what a real what, what gets to be a real story versus not mm. like because there is such a thing as a real superman story like real there's a there's a stamp on the cover this is this is an okay superman story there's just one Superman story that's being told. You can't have kids retelling the like the classic Superman stories, the 12 labors of Hercules up to the part where, you know, Hercules uh, kills his wife in a jealous rage and gets stabbed by a centaur arrow and, brought, and like burns and brought up to heaven that way. Like that isn't in the Disney's Hercules, but that's okay because the grownups can tell that story and ask themselves whether this is a good story or not. And and the kids can tell the labors and can talk about the, the Aegean stables and, and the Nemean lion. And you can have both of these things being true at once. But if you have one sort of if there's one vision, it needs to be this one synoptic vision. So it can only be one thing you can't tell. It's hard to tell like kid Superman and adult Superman. I don't know if this or is- Or you do sense. the
0: Spider-Verse version, right? Yeah, literal parallel universes. <laughs> it's about, right,
1: like, right, yeah, yeah.
2: Well, I think that's uh, you, to to the ostensible topic. I think you're exactly right there. Like <laughs> one solution. <laughs> yeah, no, one solution to how do you as copyrights holder, as as rights holder, deal with the desire to tell and a young adult spider-man story and an adult adult spider-man story and a weird noir spider-man story and like the kids are into the animes now well okay we've got like 16 different spider verses that are all going simultaneously and and, that would be so good anyway
1: i know it's amazing there's and I get yeah so i mean i i do i I love that um that multiplicity and like the idea of comics are, are a great way of talking about like just com- differing, branching, incredibly multiple continuities, um, but there's also like the there's a tension between continuity, like the literally the idea of continuing, and then the resets, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the kind yeah. of always pulling back to an origin, always pulling back to. I mean, you know, the the weird copyright things that made several Spider-Man movies constantly coming out. You know, the whole Sony holding on to license. Car. <laughs> yeah, like literally because Sony needed to hold on to this license, they just kept putting out Spider Man movies and they just kept, I mean, it, it was too much. And then they kept resetting to Origin, right? Like with a new Spider Man each time. And that is super fascinating to me because it also speaks to this tension between childhood and adulthood, uh, where, like, I mean, you've got the, the history of comics is so, so like rooted in this kind of obsession. With what is childhood? Is it like I mean, you've got like Frederick Wortham and like Seduction of the Innocent. So on the one hand, comics are going to destroy the innocence of children because they're all veiled references to sexuality and blah 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 and homosexuality specifically. But on the other hand, like comics are like bad because they are for kids like comics are simultaneously for kids and also the thing that is going to destroy kids and there's like that tension in the conversations around comics like over decades has been the source of a lot of like a a lot of writing a lot of art a lot of uh, a lot of storytelling that has come out of like how do we reconcile this difference in narrative you know how do we um how how do we do both how do we reject a false premise how you know all of that stuff um Bill and that's
2: right you say the kid who says the magic word and then becomes an extremely strong mythologically powerful superhero in tights
1: yes yeah. there's also a really interesting uh thing that i see happening with uh, with comics today where I mean, there's so much I mean I, I love comics so much and it's another thing where it's like I do actually know the boundaries of my ignorance here because my partner is like extremely extremely knowledgeable about especially Marvel's history um but uh there's there's something that I observe um in terms of what the power fantasy consists of in a lot in like a sort of progression like I'm thinking of um like, Hannah Blumenreich's, uh, like, take on on Spider-Man, uh, where she's, she, which I'm positive influenced of uh, the, uh, the first um, Tom Holland uh, Spider-Man movie, where, like, Spider-Man is in Queens, where there are, like, no tall buildings, you know, so, so you've got, like, this, like, friendly neighborhood Spider-Man who's kind of just running around, because you can't, like, zip off of buildings in Queens, there aren't any tall buildings there. Um, not in the way that there are in Manhattan. But there's this one comic in particular that she, she does uh, where there's a, a young woman who's being uh, harassed by some dudes on the street and she sees Spider-Man and she kind of just walks up to Spider-Man and is like, hey, are, are you the real Spider-Man? And he's like, yes, yes. What, do you need help? And she's like, yeah, there are some dudes harassing me. And, uh, and he's like, I'll go punch them. And she goes, actually, could you maybe just like walk me home? Cause that's kind of what I'd rather. And it's like this super sweet thing where he starts telling her the plot to cowboy bebop and like is walking her home. And it's just adorable and very caring and very much like, Oh, do you want to actually have a teenage Spider-Man dealing with actual teenage problems and stuff and if so maybe this is one way to visualize it that doesn't involve just punching out some dudes in one kind of power fantasy and instead it's like you know very much a a woman's fantasy of what it would be like to have some like very powerful dude just listen to her and be kind and I don't know it's just like all of that feeds into um into this for me. This is so far afield from our initial premise. That's okay.
0: That's okay. I mean, I think that it does get at sort of the question I wanted to ask you both is, and, and we, I think we've sort of been circling it in many ways, which is like this, this episode about alternate universes, parallel universes, whatever it is, gets requested all the time. There's like constantly headlines in the Daily Mail. Like people love this idea. Like there's something really deeply alluring about the idea that there are these other versions of our world out there. And I wonder like why you think this is such an appealing idea. Like what is so enticing about this concept?
1: I Personally, I think it's that we live short and finite lives and the idea that there is a way to interact with the the paths that we didn't take with. I, I, there are two things that I think of. One is that um, scene in Sandman and um, which I can't remember the, you know uh, issue and stuff of but like uh, someone is talking to um, destiny uh, it was like one of the one of the endless and like basically when you look ahead of you there are there's this twisting labyrinth of paths you can take but when you look behind you there's just this one straight road and I find that very beautiful and very very disconcerting. The other thing I think of is Ted Chang had a like, stunningly beautiful novella um, in his most recent collection uh, that was Anxiety is the Dizziness of Freedom, I think, um, where there is a device that allows you to interact with alternate versions of yourself. Um, and it's like you know with any ted chang stories exploring very methodically like every facet of society that is affected by this thing celebrities who want to find a living version of their spouse in another universe and their blah 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 anyways it's it's an amazing story but i think the appeal is really just the same in some ways the same appeal of writing fiction for me which is just the ability to go outside yourself and experience every version of the world that appeals to you without having without being bounded by material conditions without um you know just the question of who are you going to be when you grow up you know and then you're grown up and you're like am I the person I wanted to be what have I missed out on is there some way of not missing out on that is there some way of like prolonging this experience of this incredible multi world that we live in and stuff.
2: I think that's a great answer. Um, <laughs> we we care so much about who we are you know we look around and to, we look around to, our lives at the people that we love at the people who we uh can't stand in some cases uh at the lives that we've created or helped bring into being and at the friends that we care for and they seem like the rock of gibraltar you know they they seem like true fixed certainties about the world as unchanging as polaris but so many of those are contingent or could have been contingent, didn't have to work out that way. If you, if you think that it's possible at all, that anything that happens didn't have to work out that way. Right. If you're not, if you're not a pure determin, even if you, even if you are a pure determinist, you can see just how strange a certain coincidence might be. Someone happens to be, in a room to hear somebody make a, a, an insightful comment, and that there, but for that reason, goes off and makes some great work of art, or even is just talking about it in a bar later and runs into somebody they wouldn't have run into otherwise, who then ends up meeting or not meeting the love of their life or crossing the street at the wrong moment when they're not looking. These notions cascade. So, on the one hand, we cling so dearly to the people that we love and that we care about to the constituents of our own reality and on the other hand there are any number of coincidences or blinks odd chances that if they'd gone the other way we wouldn't have met those people or wouldn't feel the same way about them or would just things wouldn't have had a chance to grow or other things would have had a chance to grow it's Really, I I think that's the the core gravity of alternate reality. This question of who are we really (laughs) underneath all of that? Who are any of these people that are around us really?
1: Oh, sorry. I I, I didn't want to interrupt. I
2: was just in that one of those trailing off and and, and (laughs) things, but go for it.
1: I was gonna say uh, there's this really really beautiful book uh, by Jill Walton called My Real Children. Oh god, um, I need it. Oh. and I I deeply deeply love it. Um, it's it's very painful, um, but it's ex- like just extremely moving, um, and it it touches on the that aspect of memory and stuff as well. The premise is. There is an elderly woman uh, who remember who's in a in a home who remembers two different lives. One life in which she had one child, and one in which she had several. And the moment of like the point of divergence in her life is whether or not she married uh, this man she didn't actually love. And it's it it follows. Her name is Patricia, and like in one world she's Pat, and in the other she's Trish. and the thing about it that is so, that, that speaks to me in my memory um, as I, cause I think about it a lot, especially in the world in which we live, um, there's one life in which her domestic happiness is enormous. And that in that world, the world around them, the, the world of geopolitics is horrible and destructive, but she has found like this core joy. And in the other world um, her domestic situation is horrific and the world around her is becoming this kind of utopia of like nations and harmony and various things like that. And it was, I just I think back on that so much, not not as like, you know, a sort of um, mutually exclusive proposition of like one can't have everything, but just, it makes me think so much of how when Things are like, just everything is always happening. Everything is always happening at once. And we are creatures who are apophenic. <laughs> One of my favorite words that Max put into the book. Um, we, we're always finding patterns and patterns require difference. And the idea that you know, if, if you are happy in your home life, you can't help but like feel afraid for it and want to protect it from the horrors of the world. And if you're unhappy in your home life, then all you want is to get outside it and everything outside it must seem more wonderful. In contrast, like, I think that there's always a sense of you know, parallelism going on in our experience of life, not even what we didn't do, but what we are doing always invites a question of like, what is happening at the same time? And we're always, I think, going to be, more alive to or more sensitive to the things happening that are remarkably different from our defaults, from our experiences, um, then we're going to see the things that are similar. There's always that question of, of contrast. Um, anyway, it's also a wonderful book and I just extremely recommend it and everything Jill Walton has done because she's brilliant. Yeah.
0: I just uh, read Among Others recently. Oh God, I love that book. Mm. Um, which I had read years and years ago, and someone re-recommended, and I was like, "Man, I know I read that book, but you're like, have a book where you're like, I definitely read it, couldn't tell you yeah. anything about it. It's on my shelf, so I was like, oh, I'll just pull it off and I'll reread it. And I was like, Oh yeah, this is really good. I had like a <laughs> memory. There are like fairies and children, and I, but I like couldn't tell you anything more than that. Um, but I just reread it, uh, and it is—it's a
1: delight, uh, which is good. Sometimes you revisit things, and you're like, "Ooh, that was not as good as I remember." <laughs> I mean, Joe literally is like—I think she's like the source of the suck fairy. That like, oh, the suck fairy has visited this boat. Oh, really? That's funny. yeah. yeah. Um, I'm pretty sure it's original, Laura. But like, yeah, she's she's—that's where I first heard it anyway. And the idea that like. I uh, it's also because you're a different person yes. when you read a given book. Um, every weird time.
2: collaboration between the 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 willful reader and the text that may or may not be being carefully minded.
1: yeah, <laughs> yes, yeah, and the things people remember of, actually, this is probably the last thing I wanna say about like the idea of parallel worlds and fiction and stuff. It is astonishing to me to encounter to like read a book that has about it like this enormous discourse and narrative um and to when reading it realize that like no one who is talking about that narrative seems to have read the book like where, <laughs> and, I, and this is not yeah. like a, it's very real <laughs> it's just like it's so true. I'm, I'm thinking in particular, just to take a, a totally uh, too removed from any living person's uh-huh, example uh-huh, of uh-huh, this. Okay, uh-huh, uh-huh. I just
2: set us on fire, Mel. Yeah,
1: no, good. no, that's good. good. I'm good. I'm I'm a kind, an empathic human being who's not going to talk about anything contemporary. Um, I have but
2: this like, window right here, I can just dive out. It's-
1: <laughs> 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 but like the um, so Northanger Abbey by Jane Austen, And <laughs> Wuthering Heights by Emily Bronte, right? Okay.
2: All right. Safe. People talk about Northanger
1: Abbey and they talk about like, oh, it's Jane Austen making fun of Gothic fiction. It's like, it's, it's just, it's satirical. It's a comedy, blah, blah, blah. It's just the Gothic fiction part of that book is a sliver of what is going on in that book. That book is in fact a horror story that (laughs) is mostly set in Bristol about how, horrible it is to interact with people who are constantly lying to you and about and you can't do anything about the fact that they're lying to you they're just fabulists who are impinging on your reality through the assertion of their own totally made up one it is horrifying and that's the scary part when she's actually in a like scary manner and stuff like that like that is a percentage of the book it's a book that is obsessed with like the surveillance culture of england at the beginning of the 19th century there's like so much going on so what you're saying I? that the
2: people who are who are talking about it as a as a gothic satire are themselves fabulists who are lying yes it's about-
1: <laughs> <laughs> Exactly that. It's yes, precisely.
2: Just turtles like, all the way down. No, absolutely, absolutely.
1: Well, like when you know,
2: I was talking to you about Jane Eyre as I was reading it, and yeah. I was extremely surprised by how the entire Rochester plot is like a hundred pages.
1: <laughs> yeah.
2: Exactly. This book.
1: There's like, there's this and Wuthering Heights has a similar problem where people are like, oh, it's a love story. I'm like, it's it's a horror story. It is. Actually, a horror novel in which, like, and I just wondering, like, wondering.
2: Uh, this is this is you know, speaking of uh, embarrassing confessions, is that
1: the Heathcliff one? Yes,
2: yes, okay. Yeah. Is that supposed to be a love story?
1: People think it's a love story because a woman, what why did why did they, it's what super weird, like like when I was growing up, there was this camp of like, just the sense of like, oh, you're a woman who likes reading old books. Well, are you a Jane, are are you a a Charlotte Bronte lover or an Emily Bronte lover? Which means, which, in I mean, it could have meant, do you like horror more than other things, but it didn't. It was like, which of these two kinds of love story do you prefer? And there were people who preferred Wuthering Heights, and there were people who preferred Jane Eyre, and I was like, and I just, I didn't, I'd never read Wuthering Heights. I didn't read it until like last year or the year before, and I was just going through it, going, "This is an excellent horror novel." The idea that anyone is under the idea, like under the impression that this is a romance, is messed up. It's not a romance. It is I'm still terrifying. in favor
2: of the Kate Beaton read on this whole yes. thing. It's well, exactly. So with the Brontes,
1: it's perfect. It's it's perfect. <laughs> Everything Kate Beaton says about it is. Accurate. it is so <laughs> weird. People don't talk about the weird narration of the book. Like there are there are multiple frame narrators and the way they interact with each other is super complicated and weird. Like, anyway, just to say that like, there's the, the discourse around a book, which ends up driving things like film and like other media portrayals. Like, I don't know, Kate Bush's song uh, has, I think, a lot to answer for in terms of like, oh, it's a beautiful love story, you know? Heathcliff it's me it's Kathy I've come home it's a horrible nightmare where her arm is being sawed against a broken window frame I don't know it's that's not okay I mean it's okay it's a horror novel but it's all this to say there's just like a total difference there that I think is fascinating and also speaks to our um, interests and concerns and like what are you going to highlight about something that kind of creates its own parallel world narrative discourse and stuff
0: I felt that way. And this is not to say anything positive or negative about the book, but the way in which people talked about the power and the actual book, the power did not seem to be related to one another in any way.
1: <laughs> oh, this is super interesting to me because like I, I reviewed it, but I don't know. I, I don't know how people are talking about, about it so besides th- what I said about not it. Not enough mention of the rapiness. There's a lot of rape in that. Oh book. my God. There's so much rape. There's no, like that is
0: so much rape in that book yeah. yes. to the point where I was like, okay, okay, okay. Like all right. I get it, (laughs) you know? Um, but like in a lot of the reviews, it was like women retaking power. And I was like, I mean, like, I guess technically sort of, that's a thing that's happening, but like, yeah, it was, it was like pitched in many like places as like a women's
1: empowerment, almost like superhero book. Oh my God. No. Right, And I was like, that's not what this book is about. (laughs) No, that is also like, I mean, if anything, the, Oh, that is so interesting and such yeah. a good point. Because that book is making a very, a, like a very uh, determined argument about the corrupting nature of power. Right, like the idea that oh yeah, yeah, so if women had the power that men do in our asymmetrical gender-balanced society, they would behave the way men would do. That that is the right. argument of the book, uh, and it is it is horrifying. I mean. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It was really, I was Mm. shocked.
0: I mean, like Barack Obama talked about it as like this book that he loved about like women being powerful. And I was like, I mean, I just don't feel like we read the same book. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, yeah, I, well, I mean, mean, I'm sure he read it. Like he is a reader. Like he, I'm like, I feel like he's not like out here talking about books he hasn't read. I don't know why he would do that. But like, man, I was like, we got very different things from that book.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Oh man, that was the first book that I reviewed for the New York Times. And so like, I, I, I felt like, I feel, yeah. Do you, what is that? (laughs) Yeah. Oh, Max just found a book uh, that says "Comment parler uh, des livres que l'on n'a pas lu." So, like, how how do you talk about books that we haven't read? Yeah, Um,
2: which is on my shelf, in spite of the fact that I don't read French and have not read this book, even in English translation.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. I feel like that's just like you have to, right? That's like part of the whole. Yeah, naturally, it's 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 like it's
2: performance art, really.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I'll have to go look up your review of the power. Um I am very curious what uh what you thought of it. Um very proud of it. I, I talked about French actually. It was uh-huh. like that was the whole like yeah. uh, thing. But, yeah. I have such complicated feelings about that book. Like say I will yeah, I will read your review because I'm very curious. Um I'm looking at my list of questions here on my other screen to make sure I didn't miss anything, but I feel like we've touched on everything. Yes, we've touched on everything I wanted to ask you, and I've kept you for um, longer than I said I would, so I will let you go on this um, very weird Monday week of like dead space between the years. Um, This episode goes up on Tuesday of next week, so the 5th. Um, and so I will send you a like email uh, and let you know. I'll send you a link. The, another question I have for you. So I'm gonna cut this up and kind of like you know do narration, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But because the book club read the book, would you be okay with just for the patrons to just like have this conversation lightly edited, kind of like? Go oh yeah. To the yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Okay. For sure. I know they'll be super excited to hear from you. So this um,
2: extremely <laughs> rambling and and
0: so. yeah. This is like the secret where they're like every episode is like very narrated and very structured and like very well thought out. And then every so often I'll like play for them an interview and it's like similarly
1: just like (laughs) and also this other thing. (laughs) They're like (laughs) obviously like I mean one more thing yeah genuinely off off the record except for your patreon uh stuff like we whenever we do an interview there are certain like beats that we hit and that we like have uh, a sort of like set of responses that we've made a whole bunch of times and we just kind of follow it to do the
2: pattern yeah yeah
1: exactly so like it is so much fun for us to get to have a conversation ostensibly about the book that actually is super wide-ranging and and hardly about the book and just like getting to talk to interesting people and have a lovely conversation this is like a huge treat for me. This is oh, exciting. thank you. Likewise. Okay.
0: And um, the last thing I'll leave you with is a little secret. Um, and today my secret is, well, okay. I have like a boring secret, which is that I'm obsessed with whiteboards, as you may know, if you've listened to this bonus podcast for a while. And because it is the new year, I got to erase all my whiteboards in my office. And now they're all like squeaky clean and, and white and ready for me to write on them again, which is very exciting for me. So that uh, is bringing me joy today, which is extremely embarrassing to admit that that's my like main source of joy right now. But here we are. It's that's what it is. That's what I'm doing right now. (laughs) Um, That's all for this podcast uh, and for the bonus podcast for a little while. So I will I will be in your ears at some point in the nearish future. Um, but yeah, let me know if there's anything you want to hear, anything you really want to listen to on this here bonus podcast. And, uh, if not, um, you can always find us on Instagram, on Twitter, um, and in the Facebook group where there is usually some chatting and there's also the book club, which you can find us at now. Um, and I actually need to start reading the book club book for this month. Um, I have not gotten to it yet, but I'm going to get to it soon. Okay. That's it. I will talk to you all soon. Bye.